Our sermon this morning is entitled, The Calling of the First Disciples. And it's taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. I'll ask if, uh, if you'll please stand. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after that, John was put in prison. And Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship and with the hired servants and went after him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. When the, Lones, excuse me, when the Romans' legions crossed the English Channel and landed in their small ships at the foot of the cliffs of Dover, the Britons looked down and saw them, and they laughed, thinking these Romans could pose no real threat to them. But the Roman commander ordered the soldiers to burn their ships. There would be no turning back. They were there to stay. They had left their boats for, for good. When I read that, I thought brought in mind the scene early in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is walking along the beach. Little waves from the Sea of Galilee slipped up in the sand. Jesus looks down the beach as far as he can see and he sees there in the distance some fishermen. It's Simon and his brother Andrew. And he draws closer to them, and he hears the loud swearing of Simon. And as he walks past where they are, he says to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's strange the effect that those words had upon them. Maybe they know who this man was. Perhaps they were there in Jordan and had seen John baptize him. Perhaps they said, why, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one John was telling about. He's calling us to be his disciples. Let's go with him. Mark writes, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And the three of them went a little further down the beach. And there they found James and John. And Jesus called to them to be disciples, and they left their father and the servants in the boat and went with him. The master has come, and he calls his disciples. We are struck by the fact that among the first things Jesus did was to gather around himself a group of disciples. While he was in the wilderness praying, thinking, planning, strategizing, he apparently decided 
that this method would include training intensely small group and would carry on the work. He came out of that with the same conclusion with some time of seclusion and announced the theme of the campaign. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Then he chose 12 to be his disciples. Follow me, he said, and I will make you become fishers of men. He called them away from fishing for fish to fishing for people. He called them away from fishing nets to open hands. He called them away from the sea to an ocean of hurting people, drowning on dry land. It was as though he told them to burn their boats there on the beach, where they would never be fishing for fish again. Now they would be fishing for people. But why did Jesus call disciples? Would it not have been better not to trust in these fishermen with something so important? Why not go to all the major cities in Jerusalem and Athens and Rome and hold great crusades? Instead, we find Jesus keeping to the back roads, going along the little towns few had ever heard of. Capernaum, Nazareth, Bethesda, Bethany. Side roads, villages, small towns. Little people no one knew, who were not important, who did not matter, who had no power, pull, or influence. This is where Jesus spent his time. And in the company of the 12, during these three years, he trained the 12 to become the church. He was the teacher, and they were the students. So this is one of the most important episodes in the ministry of Jesus. The master has come and he calls disciples. And the master is calling us, calling you and me, to be his disciples today. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? We try to make it sound complicated sometimes, but it's really pretty simple. No one could say in a few words, what it means to follow Jesus, but we can state it fairly simply. First, we find a friend, one whose friendship never ends. That is the first thing to remember. This is what makes Christian faith different from all other religions. Bishop Wilcock said, a Christian is, assembly, is essentially one who throws himself with absolute trust upon the living Lord, and not the one who endeavors to obey the commands and follow the examples of a dead teacher. All other religions have their leader, a dead teacher. Christian faith is a living Lord. I love to read theology. I value greatly the historic creeds of the church. Correct belief is vital. We need to know what we believe, but more importantly, Christian faith is a relationship. After John Dean, one of the Watergate conspirators, left Washington and went back to California, he went down to a library and applied for a library card. He had to give a personal reference, and the lady at desk said, just write the name of some friend. And he said, I don't even have a friend. If I ever get one, I'll come back. 
We all need a friend. Jesus chose the 12 to be his friends. Who were they? Nobody. What qualifications did they have? None. How much training, influence, expertise did they possess? Zero. But he said to them, follow me. He took them on to be disciples. And later on, he said to them, no longer do I call you servants. Now I call you my friends. He took a bowl of water and a towel and he got down on his knees in front of them and washed their feet and he said, my body I give and my blood I shed for you. He promised them they would have fellowship, the companionship, the friends of the spirit to guide them, comfort them, strengthen them always. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus? It means we find a friend, one whose friendship never ends. Do you have any idea how far-reaching the implications of that statement are? If Jesus is like God, then God is like Jesus. Jesus knew and taught a great truth about life, that if living with Jesus is a friend, then we live in a friendly universe. It is not evil, it is not senseless, it is not drifting and it's not purposeless, it is not spinning out of control. The one who is in charge is our friend. We have friends in high places. We have some pull. We have an open line. Someone has given us a season pass. But many people do not believe this. I once heard of a woman who called her preacher and said to him, are you still praying for me? And when he answered yes, she replied, well, why isn't it working? She felt alone. Many people in modern society live in closed up lives behind closed up doors and closed up subdivisions. They have closed up minds and closed up hearts and closed up hands. They wall themselves off from people and from God and wonder why God is not real to them. But we all have this great need inside to find a friend. After the Battle of Dunkirk, a general landed with his men on the Britain port and the officer told this general how his men could find the rest center and offered him a ride while the men walked. And the general said, thanks, but we've come through thick and thin together. I think we'll stick together to the end. He walked. That is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to share his promise. Lo, I am with you always. Second, we learn that to live is to learn to give. Yes, that too. To follow Jesus is to be a person who has learned that the secret of living is found in giving. That's why the Dead Sea is dead. It receives, but it has no way of giving. At one end of the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful lake filled with fish and plant life. It receives and it gives. At the other end of the Jordan is the Dead Sea, but it has no outlet. Nothing grows there because the Dead Sea cannot give. 
Jesus knew and taught a great truth about life, that living is found in giving, and death comes from grasping. And so it is that he said, anyone who tries to save his life will lose it. But those who are willing to give their lives for my sake will find life. This great truth is at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Whether or not we follow Jesus affects everything we do and everything that happens to us is not just religion. It is choosing a life over death. Alfred Adler said, all ills can be traced back to one thing, not understanding the meaning of the phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jimmy Carter speaking to a class of theology school at Emory University. He referred to the hymn, I Surrender All. He suggested we should sing, I surrender 10% of my life to God, or 20, or sometimes 50, but never all. A man learned he was going to die, and his pastor went to see him, and the man said, I haven't done much for the church. If I give the church a million dollars, do you think that it would get me into heaven? And the, priest answered, the preacher answered and said, I don't know, but it's worth a try. One morning during a revival meeting, someone asked Dwight L. Moody how many conversions there had been in the night before. And he said, two and a half. One adult and two children who gave all their lives and the adult who gave half. When we follow Jesus, we learn that to live is to learn to give. Third, we go where he leads us and we serve where he needs us. That's important too, to follow Jesus means we're going somewhere. We're following him towards something. We go where Jesus leads us, we serve where he needs us. He called the disciples to go with him and they did. Simon Peter went all the way to Rome and Thomas went all the way to India. Oh, I thought you guys were gonna get out early there for a little bit. John Stroud went to Cuba, where he served as a missionary for years. He would go to a small town, announce his service in the square, preach to everyone in town, and organize a church. When Castro came to power, he wanted John Stroud to work for the government, but John Stroud refused. He quit, refused to quit preaching. One night, an army sergeant came to his door and said, come quick, bring nothing with you. He took John Stroud and his family, and they put them on a plane to Miami. And the next day, the army came to arrest him. The sergeant had saved his life. Where do you think God needs you? Maybe he needs you to survive, to be a person who is a Christian right where you are, in your job, and you're walking down the street, or singing in the choir, or teaching the children's class. If you're a young person, maybe God needs you to be a minister, 
or a missionary or a doctor or a teacher in some country where people need help, in Africa or South America, places where the need is. Would you go where he leads you and serve where he needs you? Leslie Nubian was a student at Cambridge University in England, preparing to go with his father in business. He decided to spend part of a, of a vacation working with the miners in South Wales, whom he said had been rotting in misery for years. He had no success and he felt defeated. But one night, overwhelmed by defeat, he had a vision of the cross and he realized that it was the only thing which could make sense of our lives. When he finished school, he was asked to go and give one year's service to the British student Christian movement. That was all, just a year. But he wound up in the ordained ministry and he became a bishop of the Church of South India. That happens when you hear, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Are you listening? <laughs> 